moments, but not just yet. I want to just give you a little moment of what life is like from behind the pulpit in today's culture in addressing human need and ministering the Word of God at the component where people come to our fellowship and say, man, that was for me. Come on, that's what we're looking for. But the challenge to that is, is everybody's need is different. It's different seasons of life. And, you know, as a pastor, sometimes you have to, you know, you do have to be very specific and you have to try to target some things. What if you're here and you're, and you're going through the trauma of a divorce? Well, you know, then, then, then uh, I, could, I could really speak to you and, and try to help and that'd be a great thing. What if you lost a loved one like someone else did uh, this week, you know, and, and we could journey down that. What if you're physically sick here today and I could minister from the Word of God the, what we believe the benefits of the gospel to include, which is healing for the body. So what I'm saying just real quickly is sometimes it's challenging to, especially in our culture, because a lot of times people come to church out of trauma. They come because they're needing help from the Lord and from people and from just whatever. And they, you know, we say this often, this is a sanctuary, it's a safe place. But sometimes along the way, you have to, you have to kind of go past all the external needs and you have to really narrow it to, to a, more of a universal need, okay? A need that's greater than whether or not you lost a spouse, whether or not your children have rebelled against the principles that you raised them in. You have to, we have to address some of the things that Christ came in his fullness to provide for us, and that is redemption and the depth of redemption. Now, certainly in our culture, we have taken Jesus' redemptive work and we have focused it almost exclusively upon lifting uh, you out of human need and trauma and, and you know what I'm talking about, how that he provided for us in the atonement, healing or provision and all of these things. But at the core of his redemptive work was that he came to bring us out of the bondage of sin, where while we were held, we're going to discover how we were held in the bondage of sin today. And, and then we're going to, again, part of the journey that we're learning to make in this school of the Spirit is, is that God has given us the Holy Spirit to bring us into new life. And we can walk before Him holy and upright. We're now made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We didn't earn the righteousness of God. It was not anything we could obtain through human effort. Only by faith. In Jesus' redemptive work on the cross. Amen? Does that make sense? Now, here's what's awesome about this, though. And this is why I'm looking forward to sharing with you here real quickly. Is that when you do somehow bypass what you believe is your immediate human need. And you look at your core need. Met in Jesus at the cross. Then something powerful happens. And not only... Do we find ourselves being delivered from the bondage of sin, but even without targeting the other area, the bleed-over effect lifts us in every area. Did you know Israel in the wilderness, they had gotten snake-bitten because of their ungodliness. And when they were snake-bitten, they had the effects of snake bite, poisoning in their system. 
You know, their body grew discolored. Discoloration is a, an effect of poison, of an asp, uh, rotting of human flesh. You know, great pain. The nervous system begins to shut down. And, and they could have looked closely at their human need created by the poison of the asp in their body. And they could have looked at it and focused on it and tried to medicate it and tried to, to put in this ointment or that ointment. And it would have been all to no avail. But when Moses took a pole and put a brazen serpent on it and lifted it up, and when suddenly the people that were focused so much on their human need and the trauma that had been created because of their sin and the resulting bite of the serpent, if they would lift their eyes from here to there, come on now, a miraculous thing would take place in their life. The poison's power would be broken and the tissue of the flesh would be restored. So today, we're looking to a degree, and the whole journey is a part of looking at what Jesus accomplished at the cross. And it's going to lift all of us in every area if we'll look attentively. You know, that word in the Hebrew, I believe when I remember, I didn't go back and look, at, at, look this up, but studying out years ago, that when they were to look to the serpent on the pole, which we know that it represented the cross. Jesus himself said that as the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. So it was a type of Jesus' death on the cross. The word in Hebrew is not a passing glance. It's a fixing your gaze. It's looking intently to it. You had to look intently. If you will look intently to what he did for us, I'm telling you, God will release a great healing work in every area of your life. Won't you stand up with me today? Let's pray, and then we're going to get into this in just a moment. Father, we love you. We're so honored to be in this house today, God. I am, anyhow. I'm so privileged to be this pastor of this great and wonderful fellowship. And I've already asked, Father, for you to quicken these truths in our hearts. I've already asked for you to make preaching and teaching easy in this house today. I've already asked today, Father, for the people's hearts to be ready to receive. So I'm just going to thank you in advance, Father, for the good things you have in store for us through the Word of God. It's in Jesus' name, and everybody said amen and amen. You can be seated. Thank you. If I may, for a moment of time, before we open Romans 5, and when we get to Romans 5, oddly enough, we're going to detour from there slightly today to help us to understand some of the truths that are revealed. But let me take you along this journey just briefly without going into great depth. There is an objective, I believe, in my heart that the Holy Spirit instructed me as your pastor to bring you on uh, this summer, and that is the Summer School of the Spirit. Now, the Summer School of the Spirit, when you first look at it from a Pentecostal background, your thoughts are is that we're going to be focusing on laying hands on people, for people to be filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesying and all those things. And that's wonderful and great, and we do. And we don't want to ever leave that undone. But we wanted you, and I wanted you to see that the work of the Spirit goes far beyond just empowering you in any ministry gift or calling. But the work of the Spirit comes into your life that you can do and be the person that God originally intended for you to do and to be. He, can, he will empower you. 
Romans 8 was the conclusion of a thought that Paul began in Romans 1. Romans 8 is where we started at, and then we begin to backtrack. We backtrack because it was a journey, and in order to really understand the destination, we have to look closely at the journey and the path to arrive at that destination. The destination was, is that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, Romans 8 and 1. That we walk in the Spirit and we do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The fourth verse of Romans 8 says that the righteous requirement of the law can be met in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. See, we could not fulfill the righteous requirement. Now, I understand that that is a twofold um, revelation, first of all, of the righteous requirement. Jesus fulfilled initially the righteous requirement of the judgment of God. On the, uh, through fulfilling by walking holy before God and then suffering the judgment that was coming upon all of mankind for breaching the law of God. So I understand that that was the fulfillment that he made. But also because we are in the spirit and we are spirit beings and we are spiritually minded, we can now walk in the spirit and do the things and avoid the things that the law was to a degree creating parameters for the people of ancient Israel to keep them from falling prey to. So in essence, because the doctrine that we're kind of sharing is this, that in place of the law, which the law to a degree in this analogy was a white line and a yellow line to keep Israel from straying too far in one sense. I know there's multiple other purposes for the law that we've talked about and will talk about, but it was to also keep them from following the practices of the of the Canaanites, I mean, that's what the law had said. God gave you this law so that when you go into the land of the Canaanites, you won't adopt their practices. Okay, so, but at the, now what, what do we do? We've not been given the law. We've been given the Spirit. And so now I'm governed by this inward work of the Holy Spirit. I'm empowered to do what the law, because it was weak through the flesh, could not provide for me. Does that make sense? That's in a nutshell the destination. We're getting there, but we're not there. Does that make sense? We've journeyed through thus far. Let me just remind you real quickly as we began in the first chapter. It is that we have, uh, we have uh, gone through the argument. The argument is this. All are under sin, both Jew and Gentile. God concluded us all under sin when he wrote in the scriptures that there is none righteous, no, not one. We've also discovered that the law is good, the law is just, and the law is holy if one can keep it. Part of what I've sought to teach you this season is that the law is a divine document to be treated as divine. It can bless entire nations if we would adhere to certain principles that are contained in the law of Moses. It would lift America if we would adopt many of our laws as we once did based upon the precepts of Scripture. And so the law, Paul said in more than one occasion, it is just and it is holy if you can keep it. The law was insufficient in producing righteousness and justification because many times by the time that you were aware of a precept in the law, you had already broken that law. Let me give you that example. You're driving into town, and as you do so, you go from 60 miles an hour, perhaps not in our area because it's mostly 55, but some of the flatter states, there's 60 miles an hour, and you get, you get distracted, and you look down just as you're coming into town, and the speed drops to 45. 
And so then you raise back up. You've gone past the sign. You didn't know it. But you just keep coming, and all of a sudden, as you get closer to town, uh, you look in your rearview mirror, and you, as we all do, then come on now, you righteous, holy folks in here today, and you immediately try to put on the brake and slow down, and, and the, the police officer comes out, and he says, uh, so you're new to our community, yes, and I'm just passing through. Well, you know, you are, this is a 45-mile-an-hour zone, and you're 58, and you're like, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. Now, the fact is, you were honest. You did not know. But the fact is, the police officer does not care. You've broken the law before you were ever even aware of the law. Does that make sense for just a moment? And so, to a degree, a part of that principle applies that the law was a schoolmaster and the law was to arrest us, to bring us to an awareness that we are sinners and we need a Savior. Does that make sense? And we've talked about that, and I won't go into all of that. But we arrived at the fourth chapter last week of Romans, where there we were reminded of Abraham. And the reason why Paul chose Abraham was because Abraham lived 400 years before the law, and the Bible itself declared Abraham to be justified by faith, not by the works of the law. The Bible says that when he believed God, it was accounted for him for righteousness. So he was it was spoken of by God that he was righteous without the precepts of the law, without adhering or attempting to adhere to the 613 commandments of the Mosaic law. Abraham was already declared righteous before God because he believed God. Paul's argument was summarized in the fact that justification is not by the works of the law. Justification is by faith. Does that make sense? And we close, we close the fourth chapter before we get into the fifth chapter. We close with this analogy the Apostle Paul did. He took us into that moment where God would fulfill the promise made to Abraham that he would have a son that would be an heir to the promises that he had made previously to him. And God waited until Abraham was no longer able in the natural realm to produce the seed and his wife's womb was no longer alive and capable of receiving the seed seed and housing the seed it was at that moment that God stepped in are y'all hearing what I'm saying and Abraham stumbled not in unbelief but was strong in faith giving glory and honor to God believing that what God had promised he was able also to perform and he trusted God and God made the loins of a 99 year old man leap back to life and God made the womb of a 90 year old woman that of a 30 year old or a 25 year old woman and Abraham produced the seed Sarah received the seed and God brought forth the offspring does that make sense the reason it was written in the word of God in that passage is in Romans 4 so that you and I could be brought into this knowledge right here we who were dead in trespasses and sins now Paul said in Ephesians he has quickened us together with Christ made us alive unto God we were dead we couldn't serve God we were even Gentiles according to the flesh, aliens to the commonwealth of Israel. But in Christ Jesus, we who were dead in our trespasses and sin, when he came up out of the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, I came out with him. And I've been made alive in Christ. 
And now I can serve God. That journey, again, will be expounded to us a little bit richer in the days ahead when we get into the sixth chapter of Romans. But today we're in the fifth chapter. And we're going to hurry rather quickly to the twelfth verse. Even though there is great depth in verses 1 through 11, I'm going to read them with you because I've chosen this model of preaching uh, for this series. Whether or not I expound on every verse is not the issue. I don't necessarily have a sermon. I don't have four points. I don't have anything. I just want this word to be in your heart and your mind. But I know that my emphasis today will be beginning in that 12th verse. But it would be wrong for us not to at least enjoy the journey. Come on now. Now I know when you're a young adult, you only want the destination. But when you're an older adult, you learn to enjoy the journey. When you're a child and you were getting ready to go on vacation, you hoped you would fall asleep in the back seat of the car. So when you would wake up, you would be in Branson or Destin or wherever you were going. And now that you're an adult, you don't mind. I don't mind. I like to look, especially when I'm in Kansas and Nebraska. <laughs> Sherry's going, look at the road instead of the field. You can see turkeys later. Never mind. Let's get right to the word of God. Romans 5, therefore, having been justified. Once again, this is part of our journey. Having been justified by faith, we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Come on, peace that God has given us. In the, um, this verb in the as it's given by the Apostle Paul, is in the present tense. It's not something that's in the past. It's in the present tense. I have peace with God. I had peace with God yesterday, but tomorrow I'll have peace with God. I'm at peace with him because I'm in Christ Jesus. Through whom, and I could go into great depth over these verses, and I understand, but my heart is quickly moving you to this 12th verse. Through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. In essence, I believe that the apostle uses this analogy of access into grace. It's been said grace is a place. Grace is a position. You have to access that. Access is like a doorway. You access by faith. Faith is the doorway into this grace in which we stand. That grace certainly is that unmerited favor of God, but it is more than that. It is more than just justification and acquittal of your sin but it is an empowering you to live holy before God is what grace certainly is in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God and not only that but we also glory in tribulations now it takes a maturing believer to be able to express these words because immature or or young Christians struggle with saying I glory in tribulations but as you mature in your faith, you will realize that going through tribulation often will produce, as the New King James reads, perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, this hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given unto us. The Holy Spirit poured out in our heart and life manifests itself through the love of God. For when we, I love this, and this verse is 6 through 11, it's very powerful, and if it were not for my affection being in these 
these 12th and 13th and 14th verses, I would spend much time developing this. But when we were without strength, when we were incapable of redeeming ourselves, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Notice this. The apostle uses an analogy. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Meaning that occasionally if there was someone that was righteous, somebody seeing him in his plight might actually give up and vacate their life. Some of you as parents would probably, if you could, would give your life for your children. So he's simply saying, occasionally a righteous man, someone would yet dare to die. Perhaps for a good man, someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still, come on now, while we were still caught in the vice of iniquity. Now you look pretty good now on the other end of this equation. Your life today, when I see you, I marvel at who you are and where you are and what you are because I'm seeing you on the other side of Christ's redemptive work in your heart and life. But prior to that, you were evil and ungodly and immoral and unholy and unrighteous. But you know what? While you were yet a sinner, that's when Jesus didn't wait to get you good to die for you, but when you were at the worst of human, you know, uh, relation to God and immorality, at the worst of human depravity, that's when he stretched himself out on the cross and gave his blood for you and I. The eighth verse says, God would demonstrate his own love towards us. I love the way the King James write, God commendeth his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But now, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, we understand the wrath of God is twofold. The wrath of God was first measured out on the cross in the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. God poured his wrath and his judgment out upon Jesus. The wrath that you and I deserved because of our sin. And those of us who put our faith in Christ, that wrath has already been absorbed and, re- and released upon Jesus. But those who reject that are subject to the wrath that is yet to come because there will be a day and a time when the wrath of God is once again measured out upon humankind. Does that make sense? For when we were enemies, let's go, let me go back up here, verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. See, I'm reconciled to God. The Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians said that we have the ministry of reconciliation to wit God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. See, not only did God acquit you through Jesus' atoning blood in the redemption, the exchange, no one could provide atonement. Jesus' blood was the only currency that God was willing to accept to release men from the debt that they owed to him and it was sufficient to meet God's righteous judgment. Does that make sense? And so when you and I though when we accept that acquittal that pardon that forgiveness that he offers us not only has he acquitted us but he has reconciled God's heart is towards you today he's for you today when God 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 thinks good thoughts towards you does that make sense you're reconciled we call him father 
Come on, we know him today intimately by his spirit. And now let's begin to look at this. I know it's taken me a little long time to get here, but that's okay. It's well worth the journey. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, to all men. Notice this, because all have sinned. Does that make sense? We're going to talk about that in a moment. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin was, is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. I want to stop and I want to talk about these three verses of Scripture, particularly if I can, because it helps us understand the fullness of Jesus' redemptive work for just a moment of time. As the apostle here is addressing this, he's talking about two things that entered the world, two things that entered both the world, and that was sin and death. And sin and death entered the world by one man, Adam. Adam's transgression would affect us all because we would become descendants of Adam. And then as he addressed this a little bit further, he addresses, and I'm going I'm I'm to share this in just a moment. Now look, death, but what kind of death? I want to address that in a moment. Spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but when sin is not imputed, when there is no law, the word imputed means to count or to reckon it. So in essence, that he said, death still reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. When God created Adam in the Genesis, God made him morally upright. I want to ask Shane to bring my board and maybe get some help over here. I'm going to go down and bring this board up, and I'm going to just get real logical with you if I can. Him and Jeremy, can I do that today for a few moments? I want you to, I want you to glean a couple things with me, and I want you to see this because it will help you understand understand so very much the life of God and the work of God and all that he's done. And I do want you to go ahead and grab my, my, my little pulpit over there, Jeremy, if you would, for just a moment of time. I want to pick up and discover the effects of two things, if I can today, for just a moment of time. Sin and death. I could have done this on the screen, but I like the impromptu that the board gives me for just a moment of time. The first thing is, just very quickly, we have to understand what is sin. Now, many, and I saw the post that some of you were commenting on because of, I think, Joel Osteen had said something about sin missing the mark. And, and may, in one sense, that is true. But, it, but beyond that, though, the Bible explains what sin is. Sin is transgression of the law. That's what John, the beloved himself, who pillowed his head over in the bosom of Jesus, said sin is the transgression of the law. But the thing that we're talking about today is how that sin and death came in without the law. Before the law, now, Moses, now in Adam, there was no written law, but there was an oral law. There was an oral law given because in Genesis chapter 2, if you want to read that on your own, the Bible tells us that God gave Adam a command. And his command first was this right here. Of all the trees of the garden thou mayest freely eat. So right there, first of all, it was a command to do what you were created to do. See, sometimes we get caught in always looking at the negative application in the context of following God. And we're always thinking that God wants to prevent us from doing things. And in one sense, he certainly does. Things that are destructive to you. Things that will produce 
sin, and death. But the first thing he wants you to understand, especially for those when you are born again, is that the, to fulfill the will of God for your life is just to be busy about doing what God called you to do. Now, you're very dangerous position right here on the front two rows because I understand that my saliva oftentimes leaves my mouth whether I intend to or not. So, yeah, just get that covered right there. Let me get that. That's why that's there. That's why I normally stay on the platform. Of all the trees that are in the garden, thou mayest freely eat. Serve God. That's what he was saying. Hedge it and keep the garden. Serve the Lord. Be busy. You were created morally and upright and whole. See, God had taken the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And in Hebrews, it says this, or in Genesis, it says, man became a living soul. We're going to talk about that in just a moment of time. Now, it is our belief that in that moment of time, God made Adam in his likeness. So, Adam is made in the likeness of God. So, let's put this right here, the likeness of who? Of God. What is God? God is triune. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, what is man? Man is, come on, spirit, soul, and body. And so in that time, what we actually understand in our particular studies is, just real quickly, now oftentimes when you come in the room, I don't say Shane's spirit walked in the room. I don't say Shane's soul came in the room. And I might not even say Shane's flesh was in the room. I might just say Shane was in the room. Because they agree in one. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these three agree in one. God would make Adam in his likeness. He would make him spirit, soul, and body. That is my belief, and I can't necessarily perhaps defend this perhaps uh, just scripturally, I hope to, but it's my belief that in the moment when God formed Adam, he took the flesh, and in the flesh, there was soul, mind, will, and emotions, but he breathed into him spirit, and spirit and soul, in essence, at that moment, became one or are so akin to each other that they are one. In the Greek, the word soul is psyche. So you and I understand the soul to be primarily the realm of who we are as mind, will, and emotion. The word spirit all throughout both Hebrew and Greek, especially Greek, is pneuma, and it means breath or air. Think for a moment of time, you ever used a pneumatic tool? That pneuma, that breath. So God took a man... Adam, that he had took out of the ground, he had a body. He also gave him soul, but when he breathed into him, then that breath, that spirit invigorated his soul, and now not only could he feel, see, and relate to other people, which is what we do in the soulish realm, but now he could know God in the spirit because God is spirit, and they that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. But God told him something in that Genesis. Okay, let me go there. God said as he gave him the command of all the trees in the garden, thou mayest freely eat. Get busy doing what I called you to do. But by the way, in the center of the garden is also another tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you eat of it, you shall. I know, can y'all probably can't see this over there. I'm sorry. Just trust me, it's good. And so the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
What kind of death? What does that mean, die? What is Paul referencing here in this particular passage when he said, by one man? Now, we understand when sin entered the world. When did sin enter the world? When Eve took of the fruit through deception, the, e the enemy had deceived her. She ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, gave it to her husband who was there with her, and he did eat. Now, the reason why Paul said by one man sin entered the world is because he was in authority. God had created man first and given him responsibility. And so when Adam partook of the forbidden fruit, then sin has now entered the world. Now, here's the difference between mankind and fallen angels. See, the Bible says in the book of Jude that angels have sinned. Did y'all know angels can sin? Angels have sinned. The Bible says that they, they sinned and they were cast out of heaven. And what is our belief is that there is no redemption for angels because they created sin. They created rebellion before God. Adam followed prey in the world that which God had placed him. By one man, sin entered the world and death by sin. What kind of death took place at that moment? What time it took place? What, what kind of death? Was it a physical death or was it a spiritual or was it in one sense kind of both? I think in one sense primarily it was initially a spiritual death. Now wait just a minute. We won't talk about that in a moment. A spiritual death. I'm writing the word spiritual death here so you can see. A spiritual death took place. Here's what my personal belief that led to a physical death. That physical death took place 900 and I don't remember, six years, 908 years, something like that. That's how long Adam lived. It's our belief after expulsion out of the garden that it took that his body, before it would eventually succumb to physical death, it took 900 years living in still the almost perfect environment of the earth, you know, before sin had the ability to, you know, to spread into all the earth. So it took a long time. But it is the belief by many that spiritual death is that to a degree that separation from that innermost communion that we have with God. Now, this is what my belief is right here, just real quickly. It is my belief that at that moment that he took of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that the pneuma of God was taken. Now, I'll explain to you what I mean by that. That pneuma, which means that spirit. And so, from that day forward, man could know God in the soulish realm, mind, will, and emotions. Because your soul and your spirit are so akin to each other, there's only one thing that can divide them closely enough for us to look at and understand. And what is that? It's not a microscope, and it's not by studying psychology, but it's by studying the Word of God. Only the Word of God can illuminate the distinction between the soul and the spirit. Now, see, Paul's going to pick this argument up later in the seventh chapter because a lot of people attempt to follow God in the soulish realm. They make up their mind they want to serve God, and they try as they can to serve God, and yet they always find themselves stumbling. Now, some that are more disciplined can do better. Some that are more disciplined, that you can discipline your body, you find yourself, you know, Paul said in Romans 7, we'll be there in two weeks, Apostle Paul said this, with my mind, I want to serve the law of God, but with my flesh, the triune nature of man, 
He said the motion of sin, the law of sin. But see, what happened is my belief, you said, Pastor Brown, could the pneuma have vacated from Adam at that moment and him still continue to live for 900 years in the sense that the pneuma, the communion that he had with God. And I'll give you the one biblical example that I have. I believe it's in uh, Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 37, I think it's 37, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit being taken out of the temple. The Holy Spirit was lifted up out of the temple. And when it was, the temple itself was Ichabod. It was void of the glory of God. And so man now, mankind can now only strive to know God in the soulless realm and attempt to conform his life to a set of parameters that God gives him called the law. By one man, sin entered the world and death by sin. And so we all, notice this, let me go a little bit further. I know I'm taking a long time, but you know, I don't care. It's the school of the spirit. This is good stuff. Hold on with me for just a little while further for just a moment. I want you to see... I want you to see this in the context of how did then we, as descendants of Adam, my water is hung up there on the platform. Somebody run up there and grab that for me. I don't care, Jill, if you would, for just a moment. Paul addresses this further. Let's read. Stay with me for a moment now. Let's read further. He said this, death reigned over all from Adam to Moses. Uh, let's go back up to the 12th verse. Death spread to all men because all have sinned. I want to I address that. Sin according to Adam's transgression. So in that moment of time, Adam, who is the father of all humanity, is now a sinner because he has sinned. Does that make sense? And so therefore, all of his descendants, as the family tree spread, right, all would by nature be what? Sinners because we descended from Adam. That's my terrible family tree. Here's you and I down here. We're way down here. And so whether or not you sin in a likeness akin to Adam's, it mattered not. You were already a sinner because you were born a sinner. If you were born after Adam, then you were born a sinner. Does that make sense? So therefore, you will sin. You would sin because it was in your nature to sin. It was now contained in your fleshly appetites. And as man grew farther and farther away from the garden, his mind grew more carnal, more fleshly oriented, more susceptible to satanic schemes. Does that make sense to you at all? As man, I mean, that's, why, that's where the, de, the deluge came about. The heart of man grew on evil continually. God looked down, saw the whole world was given over to sin. Why? Because all men had been made sinners. God had to stop and wash it clean and start over with one family to narrow it down just a little bit further. So in Adam, to us, in a sense, we all died. We all took upon ourselves the nature of Adam. And so therefore, before you got saved, you had a soul. You had the capacity to have life, which would be the spirit, but you didn't have life inside of you. You didn't have the life of God inside of you. You could know God mentally. You knew the existence of God. You could see his effects. You could see where he's been. You could see him in his creation. But you couldn't commune with him in the spirit because you had not received the spirit. Does that make sense? Now, we're going to get somewhere in just a moment of time. And so when God looked at mankind, God gave us the law to a certain degree, as he said later, to simply tell man that we are sinners. 
One of the main purposes of the law, if we were to read further in Romans 5, for the sake of time, let me look further. The 20th verse, the law entered that the offense might abound. It was never designed by God to provide redemption. It was only by, designed by God to arrest you so that when you broke the law, God could show you that you were now guilty before him. And in guilty before him, you would need to be redeemed. Somebody would have to take upon themselves the just punishment for your sins. You say, well, who could do that? Because God looked at mankind and he found them all unrighteous, every man. God couldn't find a single man. God developed a plan for man to approach him. It was the Mosaic Code, the book of Leviticus. It was the atonement of bullocks and goats, but it never freed us from sin. It only pushed sin off another year. It's all it did. It never took away the penalty for sin. So what God did, God said, I'm looking all across the creation and I can't find a single man that is capable of redeeming mankind from the penalty of Adam's transgression. So what did God do? He shrouded himself in flesh and blood. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? It gets all over me when I start thinking about it. Because for just a moment, you say, what was the difference? This first Adam, the Bible calls Adam the first Adam. It calls Jesus the last Adam. He's actually defined in Scripture. Romans 5 says Jesus is a type of that Adam. He was not exactly like that, but he was a type of that Adam. And so he had something that other people did not have. Let's go back in just a moment and let's try to make sense of all of this for just a moment. We're going to put it all together and we're going to close in just a moment. If I need to write it down, I will, but I want you to think for just a moment. The triune nature of man made in the likeness of God, he's spirit, soul, and body. Man, by willful transgression, sinned in the garden. The pneuma of God departed. Man can know God in the soulless realm, but cannot commune with God in the spirit. And there was no Nobody that could provide redemption, nobody, no atoning work of any sacrifice of an animal, a bullock or a goat, nobody else. And so what God determined in his predetermined counsel, that he would shroud himself with flesh and blood. He would hide himself in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even the, uh, the conception of Jesus in Mary's womb speaks of the divine nature of God and the redemptive work that would come through the person of Jesus Christ. Because when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary in Luke chapter number 1 and promised her that she would have a son and that son would be called Emmanuel, God with us, she asked the question that every woman would ask who's a virgin. How can this be? I know not a man. I don't, how can I have life in my womb? I don't, I've never known a man. He said, the Holy Ghost shall come upon you and the Spirit of God shall overshadow you and that thing that will be born inside of you will be called the Son of God. My God, I feel the Holy Ghost right there. Now, here's the power that's contained in that moment of time is that the Spirit of God hovered over the womb of Mary and created life on the inside of her. And so now this person, Jesus, would be different from all other men except for one. Adam, he's now akin to that Adam because he has the flesh that he gains from Eve, but he's got the life that comes only from the Father. My God, that's good right there. And a little bit of study in, uh, in body anatomy lets you know that a man determines the blood type of his offspring. 
And so God needed a payment for sin and blood was the chosen choice because in this life, life of the flesh is in what? It's in the blood. But all of us descended from this man, so all of our blood was tainted. But on that fateful day when in the womb of Mary came one out of heaven that did not carry the DNA of Adam, but he carried the DNA of God. And now that's why Peter looked back on it and said, it's precious blood. Hallelujah. The world had not seen it since the Genesis. It was the blood that had descended from the breath of God in the garden that gave him life in the first place. Hallelujah. And so that's why Jesus in his ministry he was called this the son of man because he gained his body capacity from Eve but he was called the son of hallelujah because he's got the spirit on the inside of him that's why Paul kind of culminated this in 1 Corinthians when he said this uh, in this context he said the first man Adam was made a, a uh, was made a living soul but the last man, Adam, was made a life-giving spirit because when he satisfied the just demands on the cross of Calvary, now God would be able to do for all mankind that he did for Adam in the garden. Breathe into you the power of the Holy Ghost and bring you back into his family. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And now you are no longer a child of the devil. You are no longer born of cruelty and wrath and evil. You are now a child of the Most High God. You are joined to Jesus Christ. You are a joint heir with Christ, made in the likeness in the image of God his spirit is on the inside of you and he declares you to be what a child of the most high God hallelujah my God that's good right there and so by one man sin entered the world and death by sin and death passed to all men for all have sinned whether or not we sin y'all move that if you would so I can close I know it's a long time and I don't mean to preach so long, but I can't help it. I just get beside myself, church family, on this. It's, it's, that's the cross. It's the serpent on the pole. I was snake bitten. I was snake bitten. I was born into the flesh. My mom and daddy created me. I was born a sinner. And there was nothing I could do to get away from sin. But one day when I was eight years old, I was at Landmark Baptist Church in a children's church service just like this. And all of a sudden, the pastor said, who wants to be saved? I raised my hand. I went back into the back. He took me to Romans chapter 10. Who that believes in his heart and confesses with his mouth shall be saved. And upon that moment, the same spirit, the breath of God, just like in the Genesis when God took the lifeless clay and God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. But by willful transgression, he died spiritually in the garden. By sin, death entered the world, and death passed to all men. For we have all sinned, even after those who have not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression. But we were all born sinners. But in Christ, Jesus met the fullness of redemption's demand, and he fulfilled the cause of that redemption demand on the cross and now God can breathe upon whosoever he will whoever will come to him and say God I trust in Jesus today then the very breath the pneuma of God comes into your life and you're made new in the kingdom of God now let me tell you this as Daryl joins me on the platform to close today when I think about that today and 
I told you as I started this series, I don't have a good ending every week. And that's kind of where I'm trapped at today. I don't have a good ending. I'd like to go further into Romans 5, but time will not allow me to. But let me just take a moment, just real quickly, in this context. I want you to see what it meant when you received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. I don't know if we really measure that. I don't really know if we marvel at what God has done for us. That we, I don't know God here. I'm striving to know God here. I'm studying and reading and learning. But I know God here in my spirit. Right? His spirit. That's where we're going. Romans 8. His spirit joins with my spirit and declares me to be a child of God. Now. It's like regeneration. Let me, I've used this analogy. I want to do it in closing. I'm just trying to help you understand these things. Because I think in understanding these things, it empowers your life. It, does that make sense? When you, when you look closely at what he did, all of a sudden you just get empowered in so many other areas of your life. You look closely at what he did. Leviticus 17 says, In this life, the life of the flesh is in the blood. In this life, if you don't have blood, you will die. Because life is contained in that blood. It's tied to it, bound to it, woven to it. That's how comes it was a it was the, the necessary ingredient for redemption, life. When we say Jesus gave his blood, he gave his. Does that make sense at all? Now, the difference in this world and the world to come. Life is in the Spirit. I've shared this in the past, but let me share it to remind you of it. See, in the Spirit, everything will be changed. In the resurrection, the first appearance of Jesus to all of his disciples, they ran over and, and after being afraid, he first he said, I want somebody to touch me. Touch me and see. Because they thought he was a ghost or a spirit or a pneuma, a spirit being. And he said, look and see. He said, a spirit has not flesh and bone as you see that I have. He took upon himself the flesh of a man. He still has it, but it's changed. He didn't say flesh and blood, Mama Glow, because he already gave his blood. He's in the resurrection. The first fruits of the resurrection is Jesus Christ. In the world to come, we won't have blood circulating through this body. See, we've got a dear brother up the hill today, right now, whose heart is failing. His heart is failing, and as his heart no longer has the capacity to move blood throughout his body, that no matter who that is, we will die. But in the world to come, we will have an inexhaustible supply of life, the Holy Spirit. Oh, man, that's good right there. We will have God's Spirit. See, now, here's how Paul would later the you know, teach us about this. He said, you've received the guarantee. The work of the Holy Spirit in your life now is a down payment. You see, because we still die. Paul said this outward man can perish, but this inward man is being renewed day by day. So if you and I will look just closely at what Jesus did on the cross, then what that helps us understand it helps us to understand that the debt that we owed was satisfied. Right? 
we're now acquitted before God, made righteous. We can receive of the Holy Spirit, which thereby brings us into the family of God. His Spirit brings life to us, and now we are regenerate. We are made alive unto God, made alive unto Him. And therefore, guess what? I can serve God because the power of the Holy Spirit is on the inside of me. My last and closing analogy is I've used it before, but I just got to share it with you in closing. I know it's taking us 10 minutes after 12. I know that. So that means I've preached for about 45 minutes, and I'm aware of that as well. But it's good stuff. And I'm your pastor, and I really believe it will benefit your life if you hear it and look at it. The life of the Spirit. That's where we're at. That's who we are. The Holy Spirit. I want you to think of a battery for a moment. Remember how I've used this analogy for a moment? Take a battery. A battery has a shell. It has a cell inside it that also has water and acid so that in a chemical reaction, it has the ability to store life, power. has the ability to store it. It cannot generate it. It can only house it. And then it can pass it until its stored power is diminished. We are triune being, spirit, soul, and body. So our soul, in essence, is the cell. Our body is the shell. But we need the, the pneuma to have life. So when you go out to start your car and it doesn't start and you've run all the back because somebody left the lights on it, a demand was placed on it, it drew it down. The only way for it to get life again is it has to be regenerated. Now everybody knows that you can do that one of two ways. You jump it by an external power source that's got life and once your vehicle starts, a generator is on your motor, right? A little generator and as that motor turns it's chargingly constantly charging your battery but the cells themselves will eventually wear away and you'll have to replace that battery with that in this flesh right now I've received the Holy Spirit and I pray that I walk in the Spirit and through prayer I could stir up the Spirit on the inside of me but did you know in the world to come all that I am will be made alive by the power of His Holy Spirit. The life of God that's in constant regeneration will be inside. I will never diminish. I, I, I mean, I'll be fatigued when I go home today. You may not be. You may be full. Because I've jumped. You may have came empty and God sent me here full. And so I charge and you're like, mm, I shut up. I'll go home a little bit fatigued because I've emptied but there's a world coming when the Spirit of God oh y'all hear what I'm saying that's why it's called the regeneration hallelujah we get just a little glimpse of it on this side of eternity the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of the world that is yet to come by one man sin entered the world and death passed upon all sin for we have all sinned if we were to end the, that and read the end of that chapter, he would go on to tell us that where sin abounded, sin abounded because of the law, grace has much more abounded. 
And grace brings us in. Come on, our faith brings us in to grace where we receive of God's Holy Spirit and changes our lives. Our heads are bowed, our eyes closed. I know it's way past 12 and I understand, but let me give this final invitation. I want to give a twofold invitation for you today. Twofold. First of all, you're here today and you say, Pastor, and I, I didn't know, but as you taught today, I understood, even though there was a depth to what you were saying, Pastor Brown, I understood that I've been trying to serve God. I've been trying to worship. I've been trying to do all these things in my mind, through my human will, and with my emotions. But today, you have shown me that I need to, by faith, receive the Holy Spirit. As I receive Christ as my Savior, the Holy Spirit is given, and it brings me into the kingdom of God. If that's you today, you say, Pastor, would you pray with me? Right where I am, I want to pray with you, and I believe God at that moment will supply His Spirit, and you will be born again. Remember what Jesus said? Born by the Spirit. Is that you? Can I see your hand? If there's anyone here today, anybody at all, as I look across the congregation, number two, number two, who here today would say, Pastor Brown, just pray with me that God illuminates this subject that you're talking about. Because I see there is so much freedom and so much life that's contained in it. If that's you.